Welcome to the third season of the Copenhagen Legal Tech Lab podcast and the series Rethinking Big Tech. Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of season three of Copenhagen Legal Tech Lab podcast that we are co-organizing with the UWA Tech and Policy Lab, an interdisciplinary research institute based in Perth, Western Australia. My name is Alexandra Anhoff and I'm an associate professor at the Faculty of Law, University of Copenhagen, and I will be your host today. We are recording this episode at the University of Western Australia, and as is the custom in this amazing country, I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands, waterways and skies where this podcast is recorded, the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation. We pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging. Today, my guest is Dr. Hannah Smith, a Minder Research Fellow in the UWA Tech and Policy Lab and the UNWA Law School. Hannah's research focuses on promoting data-driven, human-centered approaches to regulating, developing and emerging technologies to ensure their support the public interest. Her work has looked at how we should regulate technologies such as wearables and drones and seeks to do this in an inclusive way drawing upon the knowledge and expertise of stakeholders, including government officials, regulators, and the public. Welcome, Hannah. So, today we'll be diving into human-centered policy and regulation, and how it could look like when enhanced by technology. We'll discuss whether and to what extent technology can empower the general public and become more active in the political process, And we will also learn about an interesting case of an online-offline consultation process which brings together government ministries, elected representatives, scholars, experts, civil society organizations and citizens called Be Taiwan. So stay tuned and without further ado, let's dive in. So these days everyone is discussing regulating new technologies from blockchain to AI to drones. Regulators are fond of the framing that they are technology neutral, but they are increasingly realizing that specific technologies have specific impacts on individuals and communities. Hannah, in your research, you focus not only on the subject matter of tech regulation, uh, but also on the process. Could you tell us more about why does the process matter and isn't the legislative process a problem solved? So laws are not created for the sake of it. They exist ostensibly to serve a purpose, to deter bad conduct, prevent bad outcomes, or to facilitate good outcomes. Uh Now, underpinning this, whether something is good or bad to be promoted or deterred, are the ideals and values that societies are founded upon, often couched in terms of kind of the public interest. Now, I believe that that is linked to the law's legitimacy, why we follow it, why it is one of our fundamental institutions for governing conduct, it is rooted in its capacity to promote the public interest and those values that are important to society. So that leads us naturally to a strong focus on the content of the laws, so Mm -hmm. what is passed. Now, my argument is that this overlooks the role of how a law is passed and the mechanisms that are in place to promote the public interest. So, for example... Lobbying by corporate and other interests to influence the content of the law is nothing new. 
but it is particularly intense when it comes to laws concerning the governance of technologies. The size of these major players, often known colloquially as big tech, mm. and the resultant influence this has over legislators, because these companies promise that technology does not just benefit their bottom line, no increased jobs, often skilled jobs, and improves the economy, making things more efficient and effective. So this strong influence, even dominance, is termed regulatory capture. And this leads to legislators falling in line and following what these technology companies want, either by threat, withdrawal of their services, or by promises of a better tomorrow. Mm. And that's why I don't think that the legislative process is a solved problem. Because despite the plethora of regulatory efforts, people are still being harmed and technology is not providing the good outcomes that have been promised. So my argument is a key way to push back against this is to revisit the way that we make laws mm -hmm. to diminish the corporate influence and to bolster the views of other affected stakeholders. So this could include better ways of including others, especially the ordinary citizen, in the legislative process. It could look to better mechanisms to review, evaluate and amend laws to ensure the claims made by companies to justify certain approaches are borne out, a more agile system of legislation. Now, it's important for me to state at the start that I'm not against technology, nor doubtful as to its ability to contribute. I just think it's necessary for us to exercise a little bit more caution and call for a little bit more precision in the claims and to look at the evidence that supports that. And I think the way that we make laws can really facilitate that process. Okay. So if I understand correctly, ultimately, excuse me, the human-centered policymaking is about bringing the diverse stakeholders into the policymaking when it comes to the regulation of the technology. So that we do not only rely, and we've seen this happening all over the world, that it is the, the Amazon, it is the Google, it is the, the open AI that they will kind of draft the regulation for the better of the worse. And then this regulation is being discussed in the parliaments or in senates and so on, and they passed. But what you are saying is like we need to reflect on this process as well. And we need other stakeholders, not just those who will ultimately benefit from this regulation to be present within the process. Exactly. So we look to what we call citizen-centered regulation mm -hmm. to try and remind us who regulation is supposed to serve, whose lives are supposed to be improved as a result of these laws. And it's not necessarily the bottom line of Google or Amazon. It is the peoples whose daily lives are impacted in so many ways by the decisions of these technology companies and to try and get regulators to realize that there are alternative methods for regulating than those that are disclosed to them by lobbyists from these technology companies and kind of open their eyes as to other forms of knowledge and expertise and the impacts that are felt by individuals by these technologies. Okay, yeah, I like that. Can, can you possibly give us some specific examples of what bringing citizens into the lawmaking process would change about regulating technologies or technological regulation? So I think that the, the key thing is that bringing citizens into the legislative process 
contributes lay expertise and the knowledge of how the ordinary person is impacted by technologies right now to kind of counter and balance the the huge claims as to the promise of the future often promulgated by technology companies. So we're moving away from promises of bright futures or these abstracted claims of job numbers and economic gains to kind of what is happening now? What are people feeling right now? What is improving their lives? What is it about technology that's actually causing them harms? What is it that these technology companies are not really telling us about the experiences of the everyday individual? Um, And I'm not saying that that evidence as to what is going to happen in the future is irrelevant. I'm just saying that our focus is so much on this, this bright future. We're not seeing what we have now and regulators aren't necessarily responding to the actual problems. They're responding to what corporations are telling them could happen in the future. So, and what I'm saying is that if we do this, then our evidence basis for deciding on how to legislate and what to legislate is incomplete and it overlooks the largest and most affected group of stakeholders, i.e. citizens. Uh So current efforts are usually a consultation process at the very start of any attempt to make or amend a law that is not well publicized, that is accompanied by a white paper or policy documents that are usually too much for the ordinary person to read, consider and think about. It's either stretching to 100 pages long or it uses technical language or just isn't phrased in a way that's very accessible to the ordinary person and never makes it quite clear as to how these ideas will relate to the ordinary person in their ordinary everyday lives. Um, When we do have a consultation process, we are rarely told as to how any responses are analysed and how they will feed in to any legislation. Um, And usually because they take place at the start, it can be months or even years between the consultation process and whatever legislation is produced. Now, that's particularly problematic when it comes to technologies because the rapid pace of development means that some of the consultation feedback might be completely irrelevant when it comes to the time of actually deciding how we are going to regulate. Um, So that leaves a lot of time for the citizen input to become irrelevant or just forgotten because they're hearing, because regulators will hear from so many different stakeholders throughout the process. So there are ways to better bring citizens into the lawmaking process. Um, One example from a similar kind of area is known as participatory budgeting. Um, And that looks to the money that's given to um, small local governments or municipalities. And they can share with citizens kind of how much money they get, how much services cost, like what their priorities are. And citizens can feed into an iterative process to kind of highlight where they think money should be going highlight some of the gaps that haven't been recognised by local councils, knowing how much money is there to better create a dialogue between citizens and those representing them to kind of get a more tailored, precise and fairer allocation of funds. 
Now, this can take place in person through kind of town hall meetings, but there's also been an attempt to create apps to facilitate this process as well. Um, so that allows people to kind of dip in or dip out of the process. It allows them to give kind of one-off ideas. It might be that on the app, different priorities are shared and people can rank them. So it's a, another really rich potential data set that regulators can use when decision-making. So secondly, the greater inclusion of the citizen could increase the transparency of the regulatory process, which in turn would improve the ability of the electorate to hold their representatives to account. So if we look at a more inclusive, iterative and agile legislative process, then we'll have more access to the evidence that has supported these claims and supported regulation and the ability to perhaps interrogate the claims or to ask for further evidence or to ask if there are alternatives. I'm really, I think that regulation would really benefit from building dialogue between the regulators and the citizens to facilitate trust, which I think is something that more and more is missing from our modern societal kind of institutions. Um, there seems to be this deepening sense of mistrust that regulators or politicians don't have the best interests of the citizen at heart, which then kind of puts them off participating and it just creates a downward spiral. Yeah. And I think those are two ways that we can really bring the citizen back in um, to really emphasise the role that they have to play and emphasise to regulators who should be their focus when it comes to regulating new technologies. Okay, so I have two maybe follow-ups on this because, you know, I think that in, I in, in an ideal world, I think that this participatory democracy is amazing, right? Because, as you say, that gives the people the kind of feeling of that they 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 they're they are heard that their ideas and wishes kind of translate into what the regulator is doing. But the question here is, how do we secure that that the majority participates? That it's not just the few, right? How do we make sure that it won't be five percent of let's say, a certain community that will affect what is done and how the money is spent? How do we secure that it's actually the 75% of the community that that actually has this power to push for a certain agenda? Well, I'd have to say that 5% is still better than the 0% okay. um, that are contributing now. And it's not necessarily about forcing people to participate. It's by saying, if you want... Mm -hmm. saying something if you feel that something is being overlooked or that your interests aren't being represented that there are avenues for you to have a meaningful say in um, how we are regulated and, and how new technologies or other things are being introduced into our daily lives um, to make it more accessible it is about using a range of online and offline tools to accord with the needs of people who, you know, might have accessibility needs. Um, in some instances, that means digital tools are not useful for them. Or in other instances, it means that they need digital tools because they might struggle to access in-person meetings. It's about trying to give people different ways of interacting with legislators or different ways of contributing. 
So it might be that they do have two hours to spend at a meeting discussing ideas, or it might be that they just have five minutes in an evening so they could go on an app and look at what some of the priorities or proposals have been and rank them in order of preference or agree or disagree with some of the statements that's been, that have been given. So I think 5% is still an improvement. It's not going to change drastically overnight. I think it's something that is a long-term project to work towards, but there are a range of ways that we can go about doing this. Okay, okay. So just to maybe for the last kind of follow-up on, on within this kind of argumentation, and I, again, I fully adhere and agree with um, the argument of legitimacy, right? Because this is where actually the the, the people are active, participating, and so on. Um, and the argument of the legitimacy is extremely powerful. But one could also say, but then why do we have all the representatives that have been elected? Why do not Why do we have all the experts that have been kind of supported and also many of them also elected? Um, so aren't we just trying to go back in time and bring back the box populi with technological tools instead of trusting the the process as it has evolved over centuries to have the representative democ- democracy. So I, I do I do see your point that there could be an issue of one person, one vote, it becomes a giant mess. But I also believe just because something has been done for hundreds of years doesn't necessarily mean that there is room mm-hmm. or improvement. And if the legitimacy of our representatives and thus the legitimacy of the laws that they pass depend on their ability to understand and represent the views of their electorate, then the current system is failing because currently there is an overrepresentation of commercial interests in the processes that guide uh, lawmaking. So this is not me saying that politicians should always be a mirror for the views of the electorate, And indeed, today's diversity within society means that would be pretty much impossible. Nevertheless, citizens possess expertise through their lived experiences that is currently being overlooked, that is currently missing from these conversations that regulators are having from debates in Parliament as to how we should regulate, how these technologies actually impact on the daily lives of citizens. So... Getting the views of citizens is a critical aspect of representative duties to be fully informed about making decisions. And that's not a task that's changed over centuries. Mm -hmm. It's just we've seen this creeping shift in the power of large companies and especially big tech that now means they have an oversized influence over how regulators are thinking about this. Their understanding of what is going to happen in the future, how it's possible to regulate is so shaped by what they are being told by these commercial interests that they're just not able to see that there is an alternative way of thinking about things. They're just not really able to grasp other aspects of these technologies that are not being discussed by commercial interests. And so I'm not saying that these regulators should, you know, completely absolve Mm -hmm. their... um, themselves to the electorate at the minute they're going too far in absolving their duties to commercial interests 
and that we need to restore some balance to that by bringing the citizen in more. Okay, so now let's talk maybe about some specific projects that are out there that we could have a look at and 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 get an inspiration from. Is there is this kind of is just is this just a kind of a theory that you are building, or are there some cases that we can look at and see that actually this can be done in a successful and extremely meaningful manner? So I think the the best example to bring in here is something that takes place in Taiwan, and this is known as um, a lawmaking process called V Taiwan, and that really demonstrates what can happen in practice and the meaningful difference it can make. So you can trace the lineage of V Taiwan as a more participatory way of lawmaking to the sunflower protest movement that took place in Taiwan. And the backdrop to this was a trade agreement between Taiwan and China um, that the the people felt was not fair, did not represent their interests and actually led to the occupation of Taiwan's legislative chamber. So in response to that, and which I find quite a heartening response, the government decided to appoint um, Audrey Tang, who played a role in these protests, to the Minister for Digital Affairs to focus on digital, often open source initiatives to governmental activities because the protest movement made great use of digital tools to articulate their ideas, get their point across, and to gain support. And rather than just, you know, crush this protest movement and kind of move on and try and forget it ever happened, the government saw that as an opportunity to improve itself and Mm -hmm. to improve its lawmaking processes. So one of these initiatives is called V Taiwan, and this has been called a more crowdsourcing approach to legislation that's really useful in particularly deadlocked issues. So it uses several open source tools for the government to solicit proposals on on ideas or areas that need regulation or regulation that needs to be updated, using tools to share information from a range of sources to a wide audience, much wider than would usually participate in the legislative process, and to host polls that help lawmakers better understand the needs, expectations and priorities of its citizens. Um, And so the polling is really useful because by presenting ideas and allowing people just to vote on them, you reduce the risk of trolling because there isn't that engagement, which I think is one of the concerns people have about a shift onto kind of online participatory deliberative processes is how would we prevent something like this? If you just have an agree or disagree or what is your key priority, you remove scope for that while still getting a lot of really rich, informative information. So people can vote and this is used to create a map for regulators to see where there are clusters of agreement and also where there is disagreement to highlight consensus that would show like this is how we can regulate to get people to agree, but also areas of disconsensus where more discussion is needed and where there may need to be um, a compromise. So this can lead to live stream meetings where officials are presenting. This is the kind of information that we've gathered. This is what it's showing. This is how we're thinking of regulating that people can feed back into 
and to create a list of recommendations or a list of red lines that government officials can then use to reflect on and ultimately pass through into legislation. So there's an example of this um, that took place, um, I think it was about 2011, might have been later, when Uber tried mm-hmm. to um, enter into Taiwan. Um, and as always with Uber, it didn't gain the right regulatory approvals. It just appeared one, one day in the country. And there was a, quite an uproar, especially from taxi drivers that felt this was going to really damage their livelihood. But there was also a lot of people that felt this was good, that this would bring prices down, that more competition was better for them. And so V Taiwan was used to try and better understand the different areas of consensus mm-hmm. and where there was a need for compromise um, to produce legislation that really focused on ensuring that irrespective of whether it was Uber or taxis, um, certain laws relating to labor were followed and certain laws as to safety were followed. So these seem pretty simple and you'd hope to do that already, but the bar was so high that Uber actually left the country. Okay. So as a result of these laws decided it didn't want to follow this, it couldn't follow this, so left the country and only entered a few years later when it felt able to still follow follow those ideas. So um, Taiwan was one of the stories where Uber wasn't allowed to kind of just walk all over legislators and it wasn't allowed to do a kind of a lightning strike, move fast, break things, integrate itself within to society, make itself indispensable. And then it turns out it's kind of, it should have been helpful. It should have improved competition. It should have lowered prices. It should have provided better services. But in reality, as soon as it became ingrained within a a market, it raised its prices. As soon as it became ingrained in a market, this is what would normally happen. Yeah. Um, drivers would start to complain that the um, protections that it offered were being reduced down. And there's a lot on on Uber. And I know that that, that's part of the um, series that we are co-hosting is is looking at what Uber have done. So I really recommend listeners listen to that episode as well. It's illuminating, but very disturbing as to what what has happened. But that, you could say, is a success story of V Taiwan by it showing areas of this consensus between two groups that, to start with, seemed diametrically opposed, um, that fed into the lawmaking process to the benefit of all citizens. Yes. To make sure, you know, workers were protected yeah. and people were safe when they used these services. I, I, I really like the example. I think that, you know, there were different countries and, and different regulators applied different approaches. And I think that this is so much also ingrained in the way how what are the values in these respective countries? Because, for example, in Denmark, we had Uber also coming as across the entire European Union. And, of course, majority of the people were fairly excited about this because how truly expensive the prices of taxi taxes in Greater Copenhagen are, and, and they still are. And And there was a period where they were on, but I think that because... And this is a different example because there wasn't yet like this grass movement in a sense of trying to bring the perspectives of everyone involved. But because how strong the uni- union representation was for the taxi drivers 
and how strong they were pushing for their interests and and also for the interests of the passengers and their well-being and security and all of these issues that by now we know kind of rise with the deregulation of the taxi industry. This actually also meant that within a few months Uber left Denmark. So I think that that's interesting to to observe that you know in Taiwan it was bringing the different groups together and discuss how this should be actually regulated and implementing new regulation that ultimately Uber said okay this is too much for us to handle at this moment and then let's say in Denmark saying oh we protect our unions of taxi drivers and you know you also need to comply with the regulation even if you claim that you are just an app yeah and you know countries that do have a strong union presence are really fortunate in this respect where you can have a group of quite powerful actors that are more representative of the ordinary citizens interests and there are countries where their participation is really baked in in mm-hmm. how laws are passed and i think for the most part you see that reflected in those countries laws that do have high worker protections that do have um excellent labor laws alas that's not the case for other countries yes. where where unions are not really playing a a big role in how laws are made so it's looking at how what what alternatives there are to get ordinary people a seat at the table yeah. and i think v taiwan can help to do that and there are other online digital initiatives um taiwan has one called join but i know that i think in the us and the uk there's a similar system where people can create petitions um to argue that something should be regulated in such a way or something needs amending and people can co-sign mm-hmm. join this petition yeah. And if it reaches a certain threshold, then that triggers a governmental response. Um, And that's not saying that the government will always legislate or it will always do what the person is asking. But again, it's about that transparency of we have considered this. This is our reasons for acting as we are. But we've heard you and we thank you for your time as demonstrated in the respect we're giving you by responding because I think a lot of the time people would obviously prefer things to be regulated as they would like, but they will accept it can't always be done that way, but they appreciate and value their voices being heard. Correct. That's what really is fundamental, just being shown respect. Yeah, um, and and then probably also there are other additional positive effects that ultimately help and improve the processes not just that people feel that they are being heard, but also their opinion being translated into regulation, that improving the regulation, but that ultimately, how you said before, that there is this negative spiraling effect. This could be a positive spiraling effect, creating more trust and transparency and whatever else within the process. Definitely. I think a lot of ordinary people feel those that are in charge of lawmaking and regulation exist very apart from them yes so you'll see it's usually in australia or it's the people in canberra have no idea of what life is like for everywhere else or in the uk where i'm from it's all about well what does westminster know about the ordinary lives of citizens yeah and i think you have the same issue with the eu right and even more detached because it's not just different within completely 
you know, in the capital of the same country, but it's in completely different countries. So what does Brussels know about all of the member states and how the life is in, you know, across, let's say, in Poland or in Austria or in Spain? Yeah. And how on earth can the ordinary citizen of the EU kind of get involved? Exactly. Um, I know when the UK was a member of the EU, barely anyone knew the name of any of the MEPs, let alone, you know, what they did as a job and how the EU made a difference to their to their lives. So something like that, where it's through an online petition or answering a poll, it is starting to see how you as a citizen can contribute and how it doesn't take a lot of time for you to make a meaningful difference. And you can you can feel a part of that process beyond the ballot box every four to five years. Mm. Um, and I do think that ongoing relationship is something that is really important for helping democracy to flourish and to push back against other interests becoming more dominant um, over regulatory processes. Okay, and I think we touched upon this, but maybe this is kind of uh, my final question to you, is that um, v Taiwan or, or maybe also some other projects that are ongoing in different bits and pieces of the world, are these solutions ultimately transplantable across other countries, right? So, so years back, Professor Watson spoke about these legal transplants and how in comparative law we can inspire ourselves with existing and working concepts in different countries and try to transplant them into ours. And we see that this has happened a lot um, after 1988, 1989 across the European Union, across the Europe at that time. But I just wonder whether, you know, the the, the different cultural society, societal and other differences might actually affect negatively this and maybe not all of the countries are able to to actually use this process in order to improve their democracy. Yeah, and I think that is a really important point that regulators would have to consider and also it's not something that can happen overnight mm. and it might not be possible to, as you say, transplant or copy wholesale certain institutional arrangements We've already discussed how unions play a different role in different countries. So any system would have to be amenable and flexible to that stakeholder also having a seat at the table and the power they hold. And whilst they are more representative of citizens' interests than, say, big tech, they still also have their values and interests as unionists that may not reflect the interests of other citizens that might not necessarily align with their ideals. Um, but I do think one of the fundamental takeaways is that there is a different way of regulating mm -hmm. from what is happening in many countries today. That there are examples of citizens playing a more meaningful role in the lawmaking process and that if regulators want it to happen, there are a range of online and offline tools to make that happen and I think one of the key ways that that can happen is to start small to be quite agile and iterative about this so I know in many countries now they're using um, something called citizen juries or citizen assemblies which are small-scale 20 to 100 randomly selected individuals 
that can come together that work with experts to become informed on a subject to provide recommendations and that's taking place in a number of countries around the world so that there is a more active meaningful citizen engagement so that is something that a lot of countries are doing and I think exploring how this can potentially be um, digitized and expanded is very interesting and something to potentially work towards within a country but I think most other nations could start with those small scale um, explorations as to a different way to legislating, a more citizen-centered approach to legislating. Okay, I like that. I think that that's, that's maybe a good place to stop. Um, thank you, Hannah, for sharing with us your research and insights into human or citizen-centered policymaking and regulation. I do hope that some of our policymaking listeners will take it as an inspiration and rethink how we can bring more of our communities into decision-making process. Also, I would like to thank both of our institutions, the University of Western Australia and the University of Copenhagen for their support. Besides the institutional support, I would like to thank Carlsberg Foundation, which has supported my research day here at the Tech and Policy Lab and UNWA Law School generously enabling the opportunity also to record this season. Join us for the next episode when we will dive into regulating drones and analyze the case of Google Wing together with Anna Sens. This episode was recorded on Nungard. Thank you, Anna. Thanks, Alex. <laughs>